Today in the garage, we have Stephen Bernstein. Stephen is a senior partner with Bernstein Newman and Associates. He has been committed to defending individuals charged with criminal offenses for over 25 years. Stephen is well known for bringing compassion, passion, and excellent tactical skills to each and every case. Stephen takes pride in vigorously defending any case, big or small. He has experience with all types of criminal charges, including but not limited to assaults, drug offenses, robberies, and murders. Today we discuss Stephen's practice with disclosure and case preparation. Whether you're driving your Acura, playing your Gibson, or prepping for a motion for costs against the Crown, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to them. Hey, Steve, thanks for participating in our Law Garage podcast. It's great to have you. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me, Paul. So I want to draw your mind back to articling. And, and it's interesting because uh, the articling experience today needs to be as good as the articling experience we've had. I, uh, I think it needs to be, but I sometimes question whether it is. It takes a real commitment from an articling principal to ensure given the way things are these days, that the best experience is had by the articling student. And it seems to me that it is very much, especially in the course of this pandemic, but even for years before, it's very much a lawyer's purview. It's, it's, it's a lawyer's kind of uh, market. It's not an articling student's market. And I think it takes uh, an ethical consideration on all our parts to do our best to make sure that we hire articling students, we give them the experience, be it the traditional way that we've done it or through the law practice program that emanates from Ryerson University. I've had a couple students through there. Um, so, you know, I could talk about a couple of things, Paul, you'll let me know what you like, but I can talk about my articling experience. I could talk about how I was as an articling principal for years and what I think is important and what, what needs to be learned. So let's talk about your experience because uh, there are a lot of war stories out there involving uh, Steve Bernstein uh, while uh, being a student and uh, in helping solve cases uh, for their clients and inuring to the client's benefit and his success against serious charges. How, let's talk about your article experience. What did you do to get into it? What did you want to get out of it? And, and how did it unfold? kind of a weird story and it's it's weird also to be talking about it given I'm you know I've been doing it for almost 30 years now but brings back good memories but it was a situation in which my personality got me the job at what was then Pinkowski Lockyer Quinter the principals were Jack Pinkowski James Lockyer and a guy named Stephen Quinter who was primarily a civil lawyer all the crowns called it pinkies and it was notorious, absolutely notorious as a firm. Uh, the Crowns couldn't stand any of the uh, lawyers there because they fought so hard. And if you worked there even briefly, you were kind of marked with that kind of stamp. Uh, so uh, the story is that I went for an interview at Pinkowski's and uh, I didn't have any real criminal experience. I took every criminal course I could take at University of Windsor Law School, but there was no criminal kind of uh, clinic where I could do trials or motions or anything like that. So I had to kind of convince them by force of personality that I would be good there because it's an aggressive firm. And that's, 
I think how I got the job that I was aggressive and uh, made them believe I was even a bit arrogant as a matter of fact. So um, the article experience I had there was uh, unbelievable in the sense that I never slept. I absolutely worked from, uh, you know, like 8.30 in the morning until often three o'clock in the morning the next day. I did at least 40 or 50 trials that year. That might be conservative. I prepared probably 100 bail reviews. I did hundreds and hundreds of jail visits. I was assigned one particular jail, uh, the Dawn Jail that no longer exists, at least not the one that people were actually staying at. You know, we still have that museum. Um, and I, most importantly, and most fun for me, even more than the trials, uh, was the detective work that I did. Uh, I uncovered all kinds of evidence. I testified at multiple murder trials as a witness. And uh, I found that to be a lot of fun. I would sometimes beat the police to something. And then I'd contact senior counsel and the law society as what to do with pieces of evidence and uh, always made sure I was covered in that way. There and is that one story, sorry to interrupt. There is that one story about finding a bullet that the police missed. So uh, this was actually in the limbo period uh, when in those days, uh, after you had completed the bar admission course and written your final exams, uh, which was, I believe, late August or September. Instead of the idea of, hey, let me be called to the bar now, you had to wait for another five, six months till February to be called. So you were still a student, a glorified one, but still a student. So in that period of time, I worked for a lawyer who asked me to go and interview witnesses in the Shoreham Court area in Jane and Finch. Um, and in interviewing uh, these people, I realized that there had been another shooting that may have led to a defense of self-defense in the trial, and that there might be physical evidence in the basement of a house about uh, half a block from where the shooting that was on trial had happened. And I was examining a, the fabric in a couch, and I found the core of a bullet inside between the foam and the material of the, of the couch. And I didn't know what the heck to do. I was not even a lawyer yet. And I wasn't even, um, you know, I'd finished my articles, but still didn't have the, you know, the wherewithal. So I contacted senior counsel, we called the Law Society, and we were given permission to keep this piece of evidence uh, until uh, after the preliminary hearing so that the witnesses who would be relevant to this issue could commit themselves uh, under oath. And then uh, I was interviewed by the homicide squad uh, after that and gave the um, core of a bullet uh, to the police, the homicide squad. And of course, you know, this brings up the uh, issue of section 5.1-2A uh, of the rules of professional conduct. When you find physical evidence, what do you have to do with it? Well, you can't just hide it. You can't just, if it doesn't help you make believe that it never existed. Uh, sometimes you actually have to give it to the police, although through another lawyer. Um, so that's a really complicated issue that I found myself in before I'd even been called to the bar. It, it is absolutely interesting. And I know the law study wrestled with how to properly uh, 
put that into writing, how to create a commentary for the rule. And, and the, the, the Law Study of Ontario does have that uh, now. Uh, it does mirror uh, uh, what other law societies uh, have as their rules. But for anyone listening out there who's a lawyer, who's about to practice or enter into criminal law, the first thing you do, pick up the phone and get advice from senior counsel. Don't take that walk alone. Walk with other people. And uh, it's important because uh, the public has to have confidence in our system. And one of the things that's important is they really have to understand that defense counsel each and every day deal with ethics and walk the ethical line. Yes, they do. And don't forget that uh, we as defense lawyers, uh, we are officers of the court. Uh, we have different obligations than the Crown does. Uh, we have a primary obligation to our clients. Uh, we must defend them fearlessly. We must defend them without any sort of hesitation, but that doesn't mean that we aren't bound to certain rules. So, you know, just in thinking about it, if for instance, you are given information by the Crown that you're not supposed to have, that they have made a mistake that for instance, would reveal the identity of a confidential informant. Um, you can't just take down the information and use it later on in a trial or use it as a sword to get up from under the case. You have to return it and you have to undertake not to use it if in fact it is something that you're not entitled to use. Of course, those kind of situations are few and far between. And I learned uh, really early on as the story I just told you um, of, of my obligations, uh, uh, you know, in terms of disclosure, in terms of being a lawyer and using ethics. So uh, obviously uh, your duty is to your client, but it's also to the court in any way that you can. Let's talk about if, if there was good advice for somebody who is about to article, you know, and about to take on a case of their own, you know, how do you approach that file? How do you deal with the client? All right, so um, the first thing that anybody should do, just not, not, you know, and you learn it first at articling, and this is another thing that I, I learned a lot. You learn how to interview a client. That's, that's one of the most important things. You may not want to do a full interview before you've got decent disclosure. Now, there is a, a real dichotomy in the schools of thought on this. Some people think you go ahead and interview your client right away. You want the information while it's fresh, but... I would prefer to interview people from a, you know, a place of strength that I understand what the uh, evidence is against my client, what it is that the Crown has as a case. And sometimes when you go ahead and do like a bull in a china shop, you might find that you get answers that you don't want to have. And that doesn't mean you can't, you know, still represent the client, but it does mean you might have limitations of how you do it. So uh, back to your question, I digress. First, you, what I do is I do what I call a biographical sheet. You know, you want to put down, um, you know, age, date of birth, obviously, last three years where they lived, what's their immigration status, because that's really important. If it ever is a situation where somebody's convicted that you don't also get them deported, you need to have a good knowledge or at least a pretty good knowledge of immigration law. Then you want to put the last three years of their employment or maybe more, their education, what, is it, what it is they know about their criminal record and outstanding charges. From there, of course, 
Um, once you learn how to interview a client, one of the most fascinating things about being criminal defense lawyer is you meet people from all over the world, you get different perspectives. And I think a good lawyer, although you don't want to get too deeply involved with your clients in terms of their lives, you do want to show passion and compassion for their situation. You want them to believe and you want to act truly uh, as if you care about them as human beings, not just as, you know, the next case that you're rhyming off. Um, so uh, I learned, first of all, how to interview clients when I articled. I also learned uh, the importance of uh, writing, although I didn't think this was my number one thing, writing affidavits uh, for bail reviews, the art of persuading a judge before you even enter the courtroom with your style of writing uh, could be very beneficial. Somebody like on a bail review, a judge may say, I've read your materials and then turn right on the crown. Why shouldn't I let this guy out? So there's, there's that. Uh, I thought it was always very important, and I still do it to this day. I'm starting a evidence in a murder trial next week, and I still go to the crime scene on pretty well every case I do. Uh, and that's something I learned in articling. I would go to crime scenes. I would not only look for evidence and take statements, but I'd get an idea about how, you know, what I was dealing with, because it's not as good when you look at pictures and videos, even though we have all this technology now I didn't have then. You want to really have it in your mind's eye, uh, what, you know, how you're going to defend it and what the physical, you know, attributes of the crime scene are. So it's interesting because not only is it context that you need to understand your client, it's context that you need to understand the case. But let's talk about the history of uh, this culture, and let's talk about how important it is right from, you know, whether you're a student and you're reviewing disclosure and you need more disclosure, how that is a, an extremely helpful resource and a mandatory uh, resource. Well, so uh, much as like I think you were going to say, uh, I too had the experience of doing a trial without disclosure. Now, um, many trials actually, but uh, some of the time, I didn't want disclosure. Even as a student, I learned that on something like a fail to comply or a fail to appear, perhaps even a theft, if you didn't ask for disclosure, it was unlikely they were going to get the technical uh, requirements together. And after doing a whole bunch of these kinds of cases, I realized I could do them pretty well without disclosure. Now, this is not something I advocate generally speaking, but in those days, especially, if you didn't ask for it, they might not get their case together. And of course, I'm there to try and win the case, however I can. But the first substantive, other than these types of fail to comply trials that I ever did uh, was in uh, the uh, late summer of 1991. It was before Stinchcomb came out. Stinchcomb, of course, came out in November of 1991. And before that, disclosure was given in an ad hoc way. In other words, if the Crown felt like giving it to you, they gave it to you. They had to tell you only about the evidence that they wanted to use to prosecute your client. They didn't have to tell you about stuff they might have in their possession that could help your case, help get your client off. Full answer in defense was quite meaningless 
even though the charter came into effect in 1982. And here we were in 1991 and section seven, which encompasses full answer and defense wasn't being respected. So what you did get, and I'm sure you might've experienced this Paul, was something called a will state. Well, here you go. Here is what we want you to know about what this officer is likely to say if he testifies, but it was very circumscribed. So I still remember, I think more than one trial was definitely my first trial, which was possession of cocaine, which unbelievably had a section eight application, a voluntariness voir dire, and I was an articling student because there had been a summary election, of course, I was able to do it. In front of an old man judge named Judge Draper, who has probably been gone for 25 years. Um, and so I remember that I didn't think I had enough information to cross-examine properly one of the officers. I approached the witness box and I grabbed onto his notebook. And as firmly as I grabbed onto it, he grabbed right back. He pulled it back. He did not want me to see what was in his notebook and the crown objected and I was not able to see fully what was in there, but I did get a glance. So that was what disclosure was about back then. You, you had to kind of, you have to be very impressed with old style lawyers of the day who were able to win cases without disclosure. Now, interesting, Paul, that you said that things are much easier for us now that Stinchcomb came into play and I would agree, but only to an extent. I find it much more complicated now than it's ever been because of the issues that are at play and taking into account that if the police officer is not particularly honest, there's a lot of great police officers out there and there's some that aren't, they will put their notes in their notes what they want you to see anyway. They will leave out details and then and we've all heard it, they will say, I only need my notes to refresh my memory. And this actually did happen, even though you don't see it there. Now, great fodder for cross-examination, but still. Um, disclosure is so complicated now, as you know. And since 1995 with O'Connor, um, it's complicated again when it's not first-party disclosure. And for years... Uh, we had a situation all the way till 2009 now where police dis disciplinary records or even convictions were not given to us because the Crown has always had the job of saying what is relevant. Again, this is a job, one of the few jobs still out there where uh, AI hasn't yet taken over in the sense of it's a human job. And you have crowns that are more reasonable than others. You have great crowns who understand. And you have others that might be a little more reticent to give disclosure that you think is obvious. So, of course, O'Connor set out a regime. Young lawyers should be aware of that case. I'm sure they are. In which third-party records, there was a procedure in which you had to first show relevance. And if there was some type of relevance, you had to bring a full application in order to try and get particular uh, types of disclosure that were not actually in the hands of the Crown. And of course, sexual assault has always been exempted from the O'Connor regime. There's a completely different regime in section 278.1 to 278.91.
but if we go into that, we'll be here all day. But uh, with disclosure, so let's get back to that. Okay, so uh, I think one of the things that people might be interested uh, is how do I prepare a case? Uh, how do I go through the disclosure? How do I get my disclosure? Let's start there. All right, so these days, as you know, uh, you don't get printed disclosure. Um, I have always been very old fashioned in the idea that what I do is I like to break, you know, I usually like, used to like to, I know this is not good because it kills trees and I do it much less, but I like to print out pretty well all the disclosure. I like to have files for each witness in, uh, in alphabetical order. I will have a different color file for police witnesses versus civilian witnesses. And then I will have different color files, for instance, bail materials, uh, whatever other things that are relevant. Uh, perhaps forensic materials will have their own file, fingerprints, DNA, all that. And I like to break it down that way because then I really know what I have and what I might not have. It's really important to write emails these days to the Crown, uh, being very detailed about what it is that you want. But be careful what you wish for. If you don't know everything that you have, embarrassment could ensue because you might ask for it and you've already got it. But even worse, you might ask for something that you really don't want. You might ask some, for something that hurts your case that you don't think the Crown is really going to use. Uh, on the other hand, if you think the Crown could use it, you wanna have it in advance, you don't wanna get before a trial judge or a jury and then be surprised by anything. So you write a very detailed letter to the Crown with all kinds of subheadings as to, you know, could you please disclose this? Now, the Crown won't always disclose everything you ask for, which is when, of course, an O'Connor application might have to be brought or, you know, what is now just generically known as a disclosure application. You got to go to Superior Court to do that in order to, usually in order to ask for particular types of disclosure. Um, now, once I've got my disclosure uh, and I'm, I'm happy with the disclosure, I have to start to think about what my strategy is going to be, uh, having read through it. Um, and, and again, going back to the point of whether I want to ask for more or whether I don't. Uh, but it's really important that you be super familiar with the disclosure and, and frankly, more familiar than your opponent your adversarial opponent, who is still your friend in court, but your adversarial opponent, the Crown. It's really something that uh, is a huge advantage if you know the case better than the Crown does, because you may find that uh, not everybody reads every page of disclosure. You know, so that's how I, I, I kind of try to organize it. These days, I know there's easier ways to do it. You can put it all on Dropbox. Uh, you can have it all virtual. You can have it easily accessible electronically. There are many programs in which you can type in a word and it will pull it up. And that is great. And if you're, as most of the young lawyers listening to this will, will know that it, it's a great advantage. You don't have to have all this paper. You can find what you want much quicker. I see you smiling. You're, 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 you know we're getting antiquated. We, you know that the young lawyers really have an advantage 
and can uh, utilize it to, to be better than we were ever. Yes, and, and you know some some older lawyers have become very good at using a technology, and I you know I envy them, and I'm a little bit of a dinosaur. I'm I'm learning every day, but yes, it's very important. But you know you also here's what I'm finding. I'm getting all this disclosure on Disclosure Hub now, uh, and if I'm not getting it on Disclosure Hub, I'm getting emails of disclosure. And if I'm not getting emails with attachments of disclosure, I'm getting tons of disks. And it's really easy to lose track of what you have and to miss something that way. And that goes back to, as you were saying, you got to know what you have, and so you got to have a running inventory. So when you're writing the letter to the Crown, I know I do, and I know you do, is you say an attached is a schedule of my running inventory of what I've received to date. That's right. It's a task, but it's but but it's a necessary task. It's super like it's so easy to like to lose track of all the disclosure you have. And 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 let me make a little comment about the hub for a minute, which is quite a new invention. It's it's only been around for I think during COVID it came in really. So yes. Great idea. Send me an email that says my disclosure is on the hub and I'm able to, uh, with my password, log into it. I can download the disclosure, uh, which is a lot better, by the way, than it has been just prior when they would send you something that would expire like within five days. And if you couldn't download it, like anybody who's tried to do a good job downloading the in-car camera videos or get it to play, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I've had really tech savvy young lawyers have trouble, you know, all the different run as administrator. How do I get into this? Do I need to download a new player? But let's not get onto that. What I do want to say is it's not an advantage for the crown to know when you're looking at the disclosure. And, and I think everyone should know that the crown can tell on the disclosure hub when you've opened it, because I just had this happen this week and I've seen it now a couple of times. Well, I, I see you were able to open it. So the crown kind of knows when you're working. It doesn't seem right to me somehow, uh, just like I don't need to know when they're working. Um, so for every technological advancement, there is always the other side that you got to keep on, on top of. Um, just make sure that whether you're doing it in old fashioned way or in these newfangled ways where you can use all the technology, where you can write right on your iPad, all the things that you can do to prepare, just make sure you know your case and you're not missing you know, important stuff that you could could really hurt your client because after all, we're here to help our clients and do a proper job for them. So when you do get the disclosure, what are you looking for? What's important, what's not important? All right, well, I think that, you know, in most cases, the first thing that I still look at are either witness statements um, or I look for the police notes. Sounds pretty simple but these are still the fundamental bread and butter parts that you got to look for. And it depends obviously on the case. If this is a case that is an ID case, obviously you want to look for what kind of work did the police do and have they done a good job in, uh, or do they have tunnel vision? Have they done photo lineups with the witness? Have they tried to extract DNA? Are there fingerprints? You know, you look at the forensic evidence 
you obviously look at the statements of the witnesses and see how detailed um, a description, for instance, there's been. Because as you know, there's lots of very good case law and identification where you can have a witness who is honest but mistaken. And that these are the cases, identification cases where miscarriages of justice are most common when somebody is so convincing. So you really have to know the details of what the witnesses said, how the police tried to corroborate it or, or find other circumstantial evidence. Um, and, and you wanna look for that. Now let's look at another type of case, which is an obvious charter case. The first thing that I do in a situation like this is look right away for uh, issues in which I might be able to exploit on the charter. And one of the ones that's become really popular, and I've won quite a few cases in the last couple of years, is, is the issue of Rover and, and, and its progeny. And these are cases in which the uh, police give short shrift to the rights to counsel of a person. They don't get them either their informational component uh, or their implementational component in which they have to get somebody before, uh, you know, as soon as possible, not as just as soon as practicable to their lawyer. Uh, or there could be other issues that are excellent. There could be voluntariness or 10B issues with a statement. There could be obviously charter issues with search and seizure or arbitrary detention. So I wanna look for those. Um, and when we have so much video, we're never alone now. Paul, I bet you remember this, but uh, there was a part of downtown Toronto, what's known as the entertainment district. And that probably is getting near 15 or 20 years ago. They decided that they wanted to put video out on the street there, like a Duncan and Adelaide, those kinds of intersections. And so everybody would constantly be on video there because they were having a lot of incidents of violence and drunkenness and all this. I remember thinking that we were on our way to 1984 Big Brother at the time, that, that we shouldn't always be on video, that we should have privacy. And given that the Crown attorneys are so interested in privacy all the time, and when you get your vetted disclosure, which of course makes sense. I mean, you don't want a client to be going to a witness's house or a police officer's house or something. I get all that, but on, by the same token, on the other side of the coin, we've got a situation where you're never, in, unless you're inside your own house, you don't have any privacy anymore. And, and who decided that that was a good thing? Well. I think we can say that the September 11, 2001 incident uh, changed the world and, 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 and made disclosure a much more difficult proposition. Now, the probing eye of the camera can be great for us, can help us. We know that police officers still don't always take video statements, even though they know that that is the proper way to do it. Uh, so that can help us to try and uncover issues, but it also can can you know, put right out there uh, what happened. But what, ha what occurs when you have a privacy interest and the police sees tons of video without having any warrant? They go to a property manager and they say, hey, can I just have the FOB 
logs and, and, and the video for the last five months. Oh, sure, here, here you go. That's not appropriate because there are privacy issues. Or what about getting the pizza pizza tapes? Hey, you know, I understand that this guy called. Can you tell me when he called pizza pizza? I want to listen to his voice. Sounds like what John Q. Public would say. Well, if somebody's not doing anything wrong, why do they care if the police watch these videos? Why do they care about fobs or audios from Pizza Pizza? But it's a democracy. We're in a democracy and we want to protect the rights of the individual. And we're losing that and, and by sometimes by having so much available. So back to your question, I'm sorry I digressed again. I have a habit of doing that. That's okay. Like I know that uh, some of the recent cases I'm dealing with, uh, project organized crime cases, uh, they, they're, they're throwing the cameras up across the road from the client's house and they're watching everybody who's coming along that street and what they're doing in their backyards. And, and uh, these things are going to be challenged. Uh, the question uh, in dealing with what is and what kind of privacy that we want in our society has to be dealt with and, 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 and as defense counsel, uh, we are on the front lines of what I believe is our democratic duty to challenge, you know, how far the state can invade into our personal lives. Well, it really does depend what kind of a society we want to have. What, what, what is it we're, we're striving for? Um, here's the thing, and, and this is an important consideration. Um, Everybody's so strapped, the governments are so strapped for cash, it's not just because we're in a pandemic. So now you are a lawyer who's, who's working on your first, let's say, murder case or your first huge project, gun and gang, they arrested 100 people, okay? And you have a duty to your client to go through all of this video. It could be 300 hours of video. It really can. And you might miss something and you can't just trust other parties to say, ah, there's nothing there. How about when you've got a statement that's playing and the police leave the room and then you say, ah, I'm gonna fast forward through this because he's just sitting there, my client or the witness, but they may say something. So you gotta watch it. So why do I bring this up? Because legal aid is so strapped that they won't authorize um, the hours to do all this. And there's a conundrum there when you are a defense lawyer who cares. Um, you got to go through everything, but you also need the resources. So you, we all know you can write a letter, a discretionary increased letter after the fact, but it's not an endless pot of gold. So that's something that I think we need to be aware of. Uh, maybe we need to delegate to students to watch these things and legal aid will be happier because students are one third the cost. But does that necessarily mean that we shouldn't be watching? Uh, so my point is the technology has made disclosure much more voluminous. How about phone records, Paul? <laughs> how, mu how much time have you spent in your career going through the police's best friend, the cell phone records and cell tower records in an effort not only to look at how this can hurt your client, but whether the Crown has missed a nuance in it in which they want something to be drawn from it, but in fact, it shows something completely different. Again, you need to have the time to do this. And, and 
I think this is something I'd like the young lawyers to think about who are listening to this. Time management is so important in every aspect of your life. And it's really important in criminal law because you're only one person, you're not a machine. Uh, so you need to figure out uh, on your cases what needs to be done at what stage as best you can. But remember to get good sleep and do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> get good sleep, get exercise and eat well. Uh, and that's something that lawyers, you know, guys like Paul and I, we know this. We, it's I, I'm not sure I know this because I know some of my family has been listening to uh, some of the podcasts and say, yeah, you're working 24-7 still. Yeah, no, but I'm saying that we understand how important it is to take good care of ourselves. But anybody who's been doing criminal law for a while knows how difficult that is to have the time to to like step back and take care of yourself and have some downtime with your family and friends. So let me ask you this. If uh, you had a whole class of uh, new calls coming to see you and they said, Steve, give me the secret. How do I, how do I look through disclosure in an efficient way? Uh, if you could say it in, a, in, in four or five statements, what would you tell them? And then, how do I write a crown and how should I deal with a crown by um, asking uh, for further disclosure? What would you tell them? Well, I, I think I would tell them to take your time in reading the initial disclosure. And at that point, speak to your client uh, to understand uh, his or her perspective of the case or their perspective of the case. I don't want to just stratify to his or her. I understand we're, we're in 2021 now. Um, and when you do that, you're going to understand what it is that you need to write. But you want to be really detailed and you don't want to give uh, the police the ability to kind of ignore what you're asking for. So make it as detailed as you can and uh, make sure that when you're writing your request, you do it in a respectful way. Make sure that unless it has gotten to the point that the Crown has not answered your disclosure request for months, make sure that when you write to them, you write it politely. And that sounds so trite, but uh, we do have an obligation to be civil to each other, despite the fact that it is a super adversarial uh, system. That doesn't mean we're rude. Uh, you know, it's not a tea party once we're in court, but once we're out of court, we should be polite to each other. So uh, I don't know that that answers your question, but these are general things that I think you want to do in, in writing a letter. Uh, so go through your disclosure carefully. And here's another thing that I, I think is important to note for the purpose of this podcast. Some people think that if their client calls them up and says, oh, can you give me a full copy of my disclosure that you can just do that and not worry about it. Uh, but actually, uh, if you look at most of the cover sheets that used to come in print um, on disclosure packages, you will see uh, something that says this, and I actually brought one with me today. Um, 
So it gives conditions of what you can do with the disclosure. You have to only use it for full answer and defense to the charges identified in the materials. You can't publish them. You have to keep them secure. You can't distribute them without the written permission of Crown Counsel. You can permit access to materials for the use of persons acting under the supervision of counsel, like articling students or experts that are retained. Uh, if there is a lawyer retained, uh, the accused, I hate that word, but uh, the person who is charged Why? will deliver all disclosed materials to that counsel with the same trust uh, conditions attached to them. If there's new counsel, it's the same rules apply. And this is the one I want to point out. You may seek the consent of the Crown or an order of the court to deviate from any of the conditions above. In other words, just give it to other people. Uh, but you got to give notice to the crown of any application, and it's called generically a WAG, W-A-G-G application, WAG 2004 OJ number 2053, it's the Ontario Court of Appeal. So why do I say that? Because you need to have, if you want to give certain disclosure to your client, your client to take home, and this has become really important in the face of our pandemic that we're going through, uh, as you know, Paul, usually what happens is we've got the disclosure in our office and the client comes to our office and we watch it with them. We might watch the videotape with them. We'll have two screens or we might go through stuff, ask them questions, it's perfectly appropriate. But it has not up until recently ever really been uh, appropriate to just say, you know, I'm gonna give you pieces of disclosure, take it home. And this might surprise some people because it sounds like a good idea. Give them to, a copy to take home and write on it and come back. You can't just do that. And especially if you've got um, a, a hard drive that the crown has given you, you can't just give the hard drive to plug into any computer because there are issues as to whether the internet connection is secure, whether other people can get into this and get what is confidential information because we need to remember that the disclosure is the property of the crown attorney. It's not our property. We're, we're, now, whether we agree with that is another story, but that, that's the law. So um, all of these issues are important that you understand the limits ethically of what you can do with the disclosure. We touched on the other issue of physical evidence, and this is another one that we don't think about too much. You know, how, how do we obviously allow uh, our clients access to their disclosure after all it's their case um, and they will give us instructions based on the disclosure we as lawyers in looking at disclosure come up with our strategy and what the issues are our clients may not agree with it but our clients have a right to at least know the case against them it's very important that we don't cut them out because too many people forget that um, the most important person in any prosecution is the client, never, not, not the judge. Exactly. We never become so uh, lost in doing our job that we forget how important the sharing of the information, the complete and full sharing of the information to the client is, because they got to know what's there for them to make an informed decision. That's so right. Let me ask you, give us a war story, Steve, your favorite war story. Um, so I had a client years ago uh, who obviously shall remain nameless, 
but he had a habit of getting in trouble constantly. Bad habit, bad habit. <laughs> he would do the, the darndest things. So he would uh, be sitting in a stolen car in the passenger seat and the police would come upon him. He'd be the only one in the car. And they would say, uh, sir, uh, do you know you're sitting in a stolen car? And he, he said, no, I don't know this is a stolen car officer, but if you check behind the ashtray in the middle of the car, you know, that crack cocaine is not mine. That kind of stuff. This is the kind of guy he was. And he would steal ferrets and he would all kinds of stuff. And he had a pension of getting arrested for failing to comply. I'd often have him out on six bails at a time. So I set separate trials for a bunch of his cases. And I remember distinctly setting a trial date on one fail to comply for him that was in Old City Hall Courtroom 126. And it was in front of the Honorable Justice Joe Bovard. And I set another one, which had came out of the same division, but with a different platoon of officers for a week later in 126 court, or maybe 124 court, in front of the Honorable Justice Brent Mason. And on the first day, all the officers from the second case showed up from 14th Division. They were the wrong officers for the first case. And so the Crown asked for an adjournment because they didn't have any of their officers there. They had the officers that were supposed to be there a week later. And Justice Beaufort denied the application for an adjournment and the Crown had to withdraw the case. But the judge did say to the officers who were there that day, now remember, <laughs> you have to be here next week for the trial that this man has <laughs> a week. So we came back the next week and what do you think happened? The officers from the first case were all there and none of the officers from the second case were there and that was withdrawn. That's hilarious. No adjournment granted on that one either because it was the second time in a week. So bottom line is if you set trial dates, good things can happen. So that, that's a kind of a cute story. If you set trial dates, good things will happen. That is amazing advice, Steve. And uh, I just want to thank you for sharing all your wisdom with all our listeners today. Before we go, uh, I did want to ask uh, if anyone's looking for Steve Bernstein, uh, where do we find you? Well, uh, you find me, I guess, by my email is the best. That's the way it is now. Instead of telling, you know, to give me a call, uh, you find me at my office at 55 University Avenue, Suite 1100, or you can email me at sbernstein, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N, at bnlaw.ca. And it's been a real pleasure to be here today, Paul, with you. I, I hope that our uh, meandering discussion has been helpful to people. Uh, and I'm always happy to talk to young lawyers about my experiences. I love to do mentorship. It's a very important part of my life. Thank you, Betsy. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is 
thelawgarage.com.